Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to O'Donnell for Liberty for another great episode today. As always, first things first, shout out to our sponsored merch hoster, SnackSwag.com. Head over to SnackSwag, get all your favorite Liberty merch, all sorts of great content uh, available, great funny stuff and Liberty stuff. Uh, always, always free shipping in the United States and all cryptocurrencies are accepted. Now, first things first, I want to give a big shout out and a welcome to our guest today. Uh, Connor Dragotis is someone who I've met a number of times at different uh, Liberty Forums, Porcupine for, uh, Freedom Festivals, heard him speak on topics of uh, public sector unions and workers' rights here in the United States and how we can get a more free uh, and free yourself economically within the workplace. And he's currently uh, working on helping people find work in the Liberty Movement, helping people take advantage of ways where the Liberty Movement can help pay your bills so your activism doesn't just become a drain on your life. Connor, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, for sure. Thrilled to be here. How's it going? It's great. So I, I last saw you was at Liberty Forum, um, not Liberty Forum, Porkfest, and you had given your pitch for uh, your little cartoon series about capitalism and reclaiming the word capitalism. Um, how, how is that going? Since this, that's the last thing I saw you pitch. Yeah. You know, everything is uh, moving forward, excited. You know, anytime you get to talk about liberty and helping people, I feel like it's just so exciting, right? Like I'm an optimist. I'm a glass half full guy. So uh, I just, heck, any day that we can deal with this kind of stuff is, is a big win in my book. Yeah, I actually, that was funny. I, I've had kind of a change of heart on the word capitalism myself since mm. Porkfest, almost in the other opposite direction of you. Yeah. Um, whereas you've been trying to reclaim the word capitalism because in debate, it just doesn't mean it. We can't agree on terms. When we debate people who don't like capitalism, we always find ourselves in a rut of saying, well, that's not real capitalism. And I came to the realization one day when I was having an argument with someone on Twitter, I'm like, wow, I sound like an asshole who says that wasn't real communism. Yeah. Um, when I say that wasn't real capitalism, and then I started looking into it and realized, well, the history of the word capitalism came from Das Kapital, the writings of Marx and other left anarchists who used it kind of to describe a worst case scenario in their opinion of what we have today, a corporate fascist America, uh, is that that was always the root of the word and trying to use it to describe free markets and voluntary consent driven, uh, economics just doesn't mash up with the history of the word. So I started to realize that, Hey, Maybe the left is right. Maybe the way to approach them isn't to try and force our own definition of the word capitalism, but to realize that their definition is rooted in a historical definition and yeah. stop trying to debate without agreeing on the term and use terms that they already agree, uh, agree to the definition of free market, voluntarism and consent driven economics and I have found it way more enjoyable to debate with leftists on Twitter since I've stopped <laughs> using the word capitalist to describe myself. Yeah. Well, I got good news for you, which is that I agree completely. And uh, in mo in almost every single project that I do, I actually don't talk about capitalism. I rarely use the word uh, because I think when when we talk about the way we want the world to be in the future, we want happier people, we want healthier people, and we want more fulfilled people. And I don't find that there are many people out there who disagree with wanting the world to be a better place. And that's a really exciting thing in my mind, because if we can agree on the direction that we want to go, man, all we're really arguing about is the best way to get there. And that's so cool because, it, I mean, that's how you build coalitions and that's how you get people on your team, because we are all working toward the same thing. And, and when we talk, when people talk about, oh, I'm a capitalist or I'm a socialist, 
those on the other side of the aisle or on the other side of the debate are, are, are actually thinking about not happiness, not health and not fulfillment. They're thinking about the bad things that those terms are associated with. If we can agree on the underlying principles, heck yeah, we got some friends, we have people on our team and we can start to move in the right direction, which is, man, that's an optimistic view. Have to go there. Right. And like to that point, I mean, we want people to be fulfilled. And yeah. some of the least fulfilled people I see right now in the fight for liberty are the people fighting for liberty. Uh, yeah. The people who are the activists on the ground, we, burnout is a huge problem where we have people who dedicate their lives to this fight for liberty and the fight for human freedom. And on top of everything they're doing, that is just an extra workload that drains them yeah. financially, emotionally, physically, mentally. And it leads to a huge case of activist burnout where we see people come into the movement, super motivated, super hyped, doing a lot of great work. And then a year later, it's like, who, where'd they go? I right. don't see them anymore. What happened to them? Um, and that's kind of the focus, at least from what I can gather of your recent work with the finding work in Liberty, maybe, creating a balance where your work is that activism instead of an additional load on them is how I look at it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, people are struggling now more than ever, right? I mean, this has not been an easy year. And I, th I think that from the top of the chain down to the bottom of the chain, every single person has experienced struggle and some really difficult times. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that and we're really honest about our own struggles this has not been a particularly easy last year uh and and this book work for liberty uh actually was born out of a time that i was struggling and this is back in 2017 uh i lost my job i was working in sales and i wasn't particularly happy with what i was doing and when i found myself without income i went home I had a mortgage to pay. I had bills to pay. I had to put food on the table. Um, and what I said was, I only get one shot here and I'm never going to take another job again that doesn't pursue something that matters to me, something that I genuinely care about. Um, and it took me six months of living off of my savings, to, uh, eating into my savings account, struggling to pay bills, really uh, having a difficult time finding that right fit. And uh, at the end of those six months, what I realized, you know, I had landed a job as the director of communications with a national law firm that helped protect people's rights uh, when they've been abused by public sector union officials. Uh, and as I went back uh, a year and a half after that, uh, I realized, holy cow, in those six months, I pulled together a ton of resources. I figured out where these jobs are. I figured out how to appeal to these different things. I was able to plug in with some amazing organizations uh, who I will love to plug while I'm here. Uh, and, and what I realized is other people are struggling out there and, and I want to help. So that's where this book came from uh, is I was able to put it in a document, get it out there and uh, put it on Amazon as an, as an entree to not just the resource guide itself, uh, but to a community of people uh, where there's almost 500 of us in a Discord server now, where there are new jobs posted every day. We're helping each other edit cover letters, resumes. We're doing the, the nitty gritty details that we need to move people from liberty as a hobby to liberty as a career. 
Yeah, and I, I joined your Discord server just about a week ago uh, and immediately started getting messages from people who live around me who recognized my name yeah. uh, and knew who I was asking for me for references locally. And I think that is a big part of finding work in not just the Liberty Movement or any movement in general, but in any community or locale yeah. is your network, who you know, who you interface with. And it, a lot of it has to do with community. Yep. You know, I teach uh, uh, business communications at Lehigh University. And uh, when I work with these undergraduate students, listen, I don't know, like my undergraduate experience did not prepare me for the real world. It just didn't, right? It was all of this hypothetical stuff. And and I see these kids, they come into the classroom and they wonder, uh, you know, they, they feel like they should have a plan and they don't really know where to go. And I think practical information is is really lacking and when we look at that in class what we look at is kind of this ranking of uh some research that was done in the mid 2000s and uh it turns out of the top 20 things that indicate success the first nine of them are soft skills it's who you know not what you know it's the ability to succeed in any field before you get to any technical skills um, and that's so important to your point, when you get into a community and you're surrounded by people who want to support you and, and help move you toward better things, that's a snowball that continues to grow the more folks that are helping each other out. And it's been so cool to see. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful community of people who genuinely care. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And like, I, I've talked about it with a few other people outside, not who aren't on the discord, who aren't online, um, uh, about kind of if it's something we can embrace as kind of a movement or an idea like here in new hampshire we have a little bit more easy of a time where people's the work you can find isn't necessarily advancing liberty politically or mm. but it is socially and culturally because we kind of have our own little like sub economy here in southern new hampshire where libertarians will specifically contract other libertarians to do work for them right libertarians will specifically contract we we call it the porcupine community um where we have pork job postings like somebody needs a landscaper it's like all right what landscaping companies in the area are owned by porcupines all right what what tutors in the area are run by are, are run by porcupines oh i need my house cleaned who does house cleaning and maid services in the porcupine community and i think as, as from from an agorist perspective that is a huge huge step towards liberty um even if it's not direct activism because most of these jobs are getting paid in cash, crypto, or silver. Most of these jobs are untaxed, unreported to the government. Uh, nobody's applying for a bar uh, barber's or hairdresser's license before doing uh, yep. hair haircuts out of their home uh, for crypto to their friends and their community members. And we're creating a self-contained economy uh, for people who care about being free from government regulation. It's fantastic. You know, it's so important because you hear these people talk about uh, something like, you know, liberty and individualism. And I feel like in so many cases, people feel like, well, man, that sounds incredibly lonely, right? It sounds like you're <laughs> isolated. It feels like the only type of person who could believe in that is someone who wants to live on the, you know, and never see another person again. You think of these kind of like very like fringe beliefs. And I think that there are a lot of people who have that and, and that should be accepted. But it's also really important that for folks who want to live in a society and engage with other people and engage in commerce and exchanging value between each other. Like we can build really incredible things when we come together voluntarily to 
offer services and exchange value in ways that we want to, right? I mean, that is the other step that, man, we don't talk about that enough, but it's exactly what happens when we build communities. And it's, I think, you know, as someone like you work with the Quill, right? It's when people come together and do this creation, not alone, but together voluntarily, it's some of the most valuable stuff that we do. So, and that's a big part of what I'm trying to pitch uh, with the Quill, with the mm. uh, emergent order nonprofit that we're working on here in New Hampshire, is we're trying to replicate what we've done with the Quill here in Manchester, New Hampshire, and bring it nationally, all over New Hampshire, all over New England, all over the country, and start popping up lodges and community centers wherever we can in the long term. And one of the things somebody asked me during one of the pitches uh, that I gave a board tank is like, do you really think there's a high enough concentration of libertarians anywhere else in the country? to support a community center. And I'm like, they'll be there if you give them the reason to be there. You'd be surprised how many people who maybe aren't activists, who aren't going to Porkfest and Liberty Forum every year, who aren't holding signs and doing petitions, but actually care about their own financial sovereignty, about their own economic freedom, will use these services if they're made available to them, no matter where they are. And we look back like 10 years ago when the quill was started was there a sufficient concentration of libertarians to support that endeavor when it started no it was two guys who out of their own pocket subsidized it and after a few years it grew a community around it and there's a yep. lot of people who are in the free state community or a lot of people who are in the porcupine community who are not free staters they didn't move they, yep. they they became libertarian or they became agorists after being exposed to the opportunities and incentives of a truly free market localized economy. Right. And so those jobs have been creating themselves within our community. And don't get me wrong, like this is very rare. You're going to a lot of activists are up to saying I need to be paid six figures to be a full time activist. It's unrealistic expectations that are burning people out as much as it is difficulty finding the work. Right. Well, I think I, I want to push back on one thing you just said, though, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, people who look at the work for Liberty community, you know, I obviously I do outreach around this topic and I want people to, you know, find a community. I think our community is pretty fantastic and I obviously yeah. recommend it. But some folks, what they'll say is like, ah, you know, I'm not a policy wonk. Like, why would I join the work for? Because that's what people think working for liberty means. And I want to I want to nip that in the bud and, and let you know and let all of your viewers know that the type of jobs that we have in there are incredibly diverse. We have admin folks. We have legal. We have the policy wonks. We have folks who just do door knocking, phone calls, tech jobs, programmers. Um, we have folks who are in executive leadership, human resources. If, if it more important than necessarily saying you have a particular skill set is being aligned with an organization and being willing. And I'd also say people can make well into the six figures in these jobs. It's really, really, really important that people know that, uh, that you can get benefits, you can get uh, excellent paychecks. Uh, those two working for liberty and, and living really well are in no way, shape, or form uh, mutually exclusive. All right, all right. Well, Southern comments on YouTube. I wish I knew about this years ago when I was battling the teachers' union as mm -hmm. a teacher. You know, stuff. Teachers, yeah. I think, is actually one of those things that maybe is a little bit of inside the activism that does pay the bills. Some of right. the strongest forms of activism I've seen here in the Free State Project have been free staters and local ports and local libertarians who have worked as public school teachers. Um, I had yeah. a very, I have a very good friend who worked for a long time as a public school teacher. Um, she inevitably quit this past year because she 
couldn't bear the way they were forcing kids onto Zoom and like the structure of the uh, education system in COVID. But like beforehand, she'd always come back with stories. But like, yeah, I took my class for a walk today. We went outside and we talked about liberty shit. Like yeah. you get the opportunity to like approach young minds and plant the seeds of young minds there. And it's not a terrible job. It's an incredibly important job. 90% of the kids in this country are forced into public schools. Right. The problem there is the union that abuses the teachers. So that's well, I mean, I guess that leads right into the other reason yeah. that I'm here, right? right. <laughs> is, right. So yes, you know, I have this book work for Liberty and that's a, that's a personal project. Um, but in my nine to five, uh, my job is working as the director of strategic partnerships for Americans for fair treatment, which is a nonprofit that helps public sector employees hold their union accountable. So that means educating folks about their rights. It means empowering people to exercise their rights. And it also means that when unions continue to misbehave and mistreat people, we help teachers, nurses, firefighters, anyone who is a public employee who has been abused, we hook them up with free legal help to hold the union accountable in the courts. And the most exciting part about that is that these are cases that uh, are being won all the time to hold these unions accountable and put people first, which at the end of the day, that's what we really want. We want people to be treated well. We want people to be treated fairly. Uh, and, and man, that's just my favorite part of my job is getting to see people walk in with a big smile on their face <laughs> saying, hey, my rights are being respected now. I'm being taken care of. The right things happened. Uh, that's why I do what I do. And uh, I feel so lucky to have ended up in this world. Well, uh, and beyond that, it, if I remember correctly, and I'm not a lawyer, and I, I barely take a passing glance at employment law because I'm self-employed, um, but it, the Janus decision made it so people can't be actually forced to join those unions, correct? So public sector employees, if they don't want to join the union and don't want to pay the union dues, don't have to. And it, it always, I always forget that, and then it always clicks with me when I'm talking to somebody who does work as a teacher, or I have a friend who works IT in the local public school system, and he runs the coding club and teaches kids to code and stuff like that. I'm like, well, how do you deal with the union? And I was like, I'm not in the yeah. union. Right. Like, right. Like, if the union's abusing you, sometimes you can just leave the damn union yeah. <laughs> and advocate for yourself. Well, so I, I guess there's a few things that I want to touch on there. The first yeah. is just to clarify the Janus decision. So the Janus decision was a, a 2018 Supreme Court ruling. Uh, uh, and, and what that what it meant was that public sector employees cannot be compelled to pay money to a union as a condition of employment. So you're, you're spot on there. And just for some context, prior to that decision, what the, what the courts had allowed was that uh, you could leave the union, uh, but you would still be forced to pay fees. And oftentimes those fees were up to like 90% of the dues, right? So you could either pay a hundred percent of the dues and get to vote on the contract or pay 90% of the dues and you wouldn't be able to vote on the contract. And that difference was, wasn't, wasn't very big. Now, after the Janus decision, the difference is between pay 100% of the dues or pay 0%, pay absolutely nothing out of your paycheck. Now, this was a great decision. It helped a tremendous amount of people. Any public sector employee can leave the union uh, and pay $0. Unfortunately, the games that unions play with people's rights are far from over. We continue to see unions tr trying to trap people in membership, 
try to create contracts that bypass the Janus decision. Uh, and we continue to see union bosses taking advantage of our teachers, our nurses, firefighters, all of these employees that quite frankly, just want to live their lives and, and have their rights respected. Yeah. I, I remember the one union job I ever had. Uh, it, it was a summer job. My dad had worked as a trucker for years and he mm. moved off the road into the warehouse for a, a distribution company. And he got me a summer part-time job at the warehouse. He's a lifelong teamster. He's always been a teamster. He's a teamster guy. It wasn't until 2016 that he finally questioned how they were telling him to vote. Uh, <laughs> but he, he got me that job. And, uh, after a couple of weeks, I realized I'm like, Hey, there's like 80 bucks missing from my check every week. What the hell is this? Oh, wow. And they're like, Oh, those are your union dudes. I'm like, but I'm not eligible to be a union member because I'm part time. I don't get any benefits. I don't get a set schedule. I'm on call part time and don't get to vote. And I'm not a member of the union. Like, Oh yeah, but you have to pay dues. That was a private union. Teamsters aren't public sector. Right. Um, I started complaining about that to the girl I worked alongside in the warehouse. And like, this is kind of bullshit. Fuck this nonsense. Two weeks later, I wasn't on the schedule at all. I had been like removed from the schedule. And I come to find out the girl I was complaining to her father was the vice president of the union. That's, you know, I, I wish I could say that I was surprised. My dad comes to tell me that they threatened his job over my complaining about the union. Right. <laughs> you know, we've had situations like that. So uh, you mentioned, uh, the, I mentioned in the beginning, I had uh, worked for three years uh, for a law firm uh, that dealt with these issues. And now I'm with a nonprofit that's a little upstream. You know, we deal with these uh, issues in a, in a little bit of a different way. Uh, but while I worked at, at that law firm, we we had one of our clients who uh, his kids were approached at the playground by someone uh, who wanted to talk about their father's membership in the union and and deal with that. And that was right in my backyard. And it's those kind of behaviors, I think, that yeah. really frustrate people when they start looking at whether or not the union is worth supporting is these are, quite frankly, massive political organizations that are in many ways just either lining their own pockets or lining politicians' pockets uh, and and leveraging that power for themselves. And when it comes down to it, if someone wants to be part of a union, uh, you know, I would say that's their right to make that decision. But I'm going to draw a line in the sand and absolutely demand that those who don't want to be taken advantage of by the union, that those who want to exercise their rights, let's respect them as well. And and give them the the choice to leave and 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 live live scot free there. I, I think I remember there's a line in the uh, movie The Irishman, uh, it's a Scorsese film, uh, where at some point somebody's arguing with Jimmy Hoffa, and they say to Jimmy Hoffa, "It's like I thought this was a labor union, not organized crime." And Jimmy Hoffa just turns around and says, "What's the difference?" There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but. It, um, so Tom has a point. Tom Tom makes the point on uh, YouTube. The Janus did not make it so someone can't be forced to join a union. No one was forced to take a union job in the forced, first place. You're always afraid to take a non-union job. I, I mean, how do you feel about that sentiment about closing off entire sectors of the economy as when the government's maintaining a monopoly on certain services and closing off entire sectors to people who don't want to join a union uh, sans the Janus decision? by making it so that if you if that was a work you wanted to do if you wanted to be a teacher uh but you couldn't be a teacher because of protectionist laws that said you had to join a union yeah I, you know the comment has disappeared off my screen oh, so i can't see if up. you have it back up 
So uh, you're correct. Janice did not make it that someone can't be forced to join a union. So uh, that was never on the table um, or whether, well, I guess that hasn't been the case since the 1930s. Um, so joining a union, the difference is about what it means to have someone's money taken against their will. And of course, you could not take a union job, but I think it's the priority. Uh, a lot of these teachers who we work with, uh, for example, I think what they'd say is, you know, like teaching's a really important calling. I can make my community a better place. Uh, I can really impact people's lives. I can make the world a little bit of a better place by being an amazing teacher. And uh, it it's a real shame that uh, they have to be associated with a private organization that uh, could take their money by force against their will in order to do that amazing work. And I also want to push one step further here because Yes, you can opt out of union membership. Uh, and, and that's something that we help people do is exercise their First Amendment right to leave. But unfortunately, unions also have bargained for a really, well, something called exclusive representation. And what that means is even after you opt out, even after you leave the union, the union is given exclusive power to bargain for wages for benefits, they're still given a tremendous amount of control over your life. Now, this is being challenged in the courts. Exclusive representation is on the table, but the Supreme Court actually recently declined to hear a case about this. Now, I'm not sure exactly why. It could be because they're looking for the right case. Uh, it could be that they don't want to take this issue up at all. Uh, but to say that people are free to not take a union job closes a lot of doors to, I think, a lot of versions of beauty and a lot of really positive things, which, again, there can be a difference of opinion but when we come down to whether or not we want people to be treated uh, equally under the law, whether we want uh, private organizations to be given exclusive powers over people's uh, lives and livelihoods, it's a really interesting conversation. I think it's one that, that needs to be addressed a little more directly um, because I, I, I am not of the opinion that special interests should be given a tremendous amount of control uh, over our day-to-day -day lives and, and folks' ability to, to, to uh, have a livelihood. Now, you focus on public sector unions. I mean, what's really the difference between public and private sector unions in this regard, though? I, I know we, we have a constant push. Every single legislative session mm -hmm. here in New Hampshire, there is a push for a right-to-work law and a right to work bill yeah. specifically targeting private sector unions. Right. Um, it, it alternates and flip-flops between where it fails every time. This year it passed the Senate and failed in the House. Two years mm -hmm. ago it passed the House and failed in the Senate um, and different iterations and variations of it. And I, I do believe there is a libertarian argument. There is even an anarchist argument for the place of unions in the workplace, the right of employees yep. to collectively bargain and collectively organize. Um, where do you draw the line there? Yeah. So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to say one yeah. thing kind of wearing my AFFT hat here, which is that, you know, obviously we focus specifically on public sector unions yeah. and public sector unionization uh, and constitutional issues there. Um, and, you know, the right to join and leave a union is, is really important. Um, the difference between the two different areas, though, is how are they funded? And in what sectors are they are they represented? So a public sector union represents people who work in the public sector and the private sector represents folks who work in the private sector. The difference there is, uh, uh, again, the the uh, element of force, but it's also uh, kind of the, the broader legal application of whether or not someone uh, has the right to join 
or not join. So I actually would not say this is me putting on the Connor Dragotis hat here is that uh, contracts are incredibly important, right? I think it is incredibly valuable for folks to be able to come together, right? This is why, uh, for example, the work for Liberty community is so very important. There's no one putting a gun to anyone's head, but when we come together and we help each other out, and in fact, we we could choose to take those 500 people and, and create an organization or come together and create even an exclusive organization and bargain together in some way, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what that would look like, but for the sake of a hypothetical, um, the ability of people to come together is so, so important. It's part of uh, what we do as humans. Um, so drawing that line, I would never want to get in the way of someone's ability to do something that would allow them to uh, make the right decision for themselves and for their families. But again, I draw that line really clearly where if it's done at the at, at gunpoint, if it's using force, if it's coercive, man, that's a much different, that's a much different conversation. Well, I, and I feel like that's really the big problem is there's a lot of coercion, yeah. right? Even private sector unions nowadays. Um, hmm. I, like I said, when I worked at a Teamster shop, I wasn't a union member. I wasn't even eligible to join the union. I wasn't eligible for union benefits, still had to pay union dues to even be on the schedule. Uh, but I, I see things nowadays where unions are, when I worked for an armored car company doing logistics for them, the, I, the Teamsters came in and tried to unionize our shop. Oh, yeah. They lost, they, they got voted down, but it comes to the point where like, if you're an employer and you have existing voluntary contracts with employees and a union comes in and convinces just a bare majority of your employees to unionize everyone else gets wrapped up in that and they don't get a choice it's join pay or leave and get another job you don't have an option and the employer has no say in the matter in reality we like to call it collective bargaining and, and negotiation but the employers are strong-armed and they really don't have an answer yeah. because under the color of law nowadays and the protections unions have a union can go into a private shop say we're unionizing your employees the employer can't say, I don't want to deal with the union. Bye. There, there is no negotiation there. And when the union says they want to negotiate a new contract, the employer can't say, I'm going to get competing bids from other unions and other labor suppliers. Right. They are forced to uh, negotiate with that one particular union. They don't yeah. get a say. And I, so I think that's where the it's a real gray area because I believe – Employees should always have the right to be able to collectively bargain and to organize. But at what point are the employer's rights being uh, overrun by that? Yeah. And so it gets real murky in the private sector. Public sector, I don't think the government should have any rights. So, so when the government's <laughs> employing people, they shouldn't have any rights by all means. Um, what we need to do is stop the unions from abusing the employees. Right. Uh, but I went to Mass Maritime for my education. My degree is actually in emergency management and homeland security. Uh, if it weren't for my libertarian moment and coming around, I would probably be working for FEMA or the Department of Justice today, but I chose I was never going to work for the government. Um, but based on my education and the brief work I did, I became incredibly familiar and incredibly like knowledgeable about the maritime industry and the shipping industry in this country. And there was always one union that stuck out to me that operated differently than all the other unions. And it, it, it struck out to me as the perfect way for a union should operate. The Marine Engineers Benevolent Association is a union for marine engineers, shipbuilders, uh, marine uh, architects, and uh, deckhands and naval officers. 
and they don't go in and like strong arm a shipping company and say, here's our new wages, here's our stuff. The They operate union halls. They go to companies, they go to shipping companies, they negotiate wages on particular jobs, and then they post those jobs in their union halls for their members based on seniority to bid on, say, I want that job, I want that job. They right. operate as an actual provider of the labor. So people join the union, the union negotiates wages, jobs, and contracts for them to go take on an individual basis. And when I learned about them like that sounds like a great alternative to what we have with the teamsters and stuff like that if the unions were actually selling labor to employees uh but then it clicked with me once i started playing dungeons and dragons like oh they're just operating a guild interesting why don't we operate guilds why aren't guilds the thing anymore if we want people to be able to organize collectively and to negotiate why isn't the carpenters union a carpenters guild why isn't the Pipefitters Union a Pipefitters Guild right. and stuff like that? Do you think there would be a place in either private or public sector unions for maybe guilds to be offering labor as opposed to labor unions and lobbying organizations? That's such an interesting idea. I mean, I feel like I need to do more research on it. You know, the, the public, yeah. quite frankly, the private sector is somewhere I don't. I uh, spend yeah. a tremendous amount of time because my nine to five is exclusively focused right. on that public sector thing. What I will say though, is that you're touching on something that's really, really important, which is where the tension is. Cause that's something that unions, it's really important. What they create in the private sector is a tension between the employees that they represent and the employer. And there's a finite amount of resources for them to fight over. So if you think about it, right, right if the union uh, asks for too much, the employer could actually go under and they wouldn't be able to pay their bills in the future. They wouldn't, they, essentially everyone would be out of a job because of the scarcity of resources. Now, on the other side of that, what happens in the public sector is that you have a union comes to the table whose job is to negotiate for a group of employees, a government official on the other side, whose job is to represent the taxpayer but unfortunately, it's government against itself, which is a title that I'm stealing from a book by Dan DeSalvo, which is to allude to this thing that union, when I say that unions, public sector unions are massive political organizations, the two largest teachers unions alone spent a combined $63 million on politics in 2019 and 2020. And that money came out of teachers' paychecks. Now, I'm saying that to point out when they get to the bargaining table, the person on the other side is oftentimes the very person that the union helped get elected, meaning that the government is all of a sudden the incentive to create that natural and healthy tension has been removed because they stand to lose by not giving the people on the other side of the table what they want. They're not going to get money for re-election. They're not going to get the support. In fact, they're likely gonna, going to be up against a primary challenger or facing uh, someone, a very well-funded opponent uh, in, in the general election. Now that's a problem because it leaves two really important parties out of the equation. Taxpayers, because there's no natural tension of a finite number of resources. Taxes, mm -hmm. uh, just there's a big pot of money there. And the other person is uh, those who uh, the employees are supposed to be serving, right? Teachers, firefighters, nurses, police officers, firefighters, these are all public servants. And what that means is that they the purpose of their job is to provide a service to the public. So on the other side of that, the taxpayers are left out because the government is not necessarily negotiating on their behalf. 
and the folks who the employees are supposed to be helping are often not being taken care of in those negotiations either. There's a very famous quote from a union boss uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, it was a teacher's union. And he said, we will start representing the interest of students when they start paying dues. And that is the wrong mentality <laughs> if, if we want higher quality services that offer great results for the people who they're supposed to serve. And I think that's a long-term goal that we could be really excited about. We want kids to get better education. We want our communities to be safer. We want our fire departments to show up and put out the fires when they when they happen. And when we have unions that are are, that is their second priority, we have to wonder whether or not they're really doing their job uh, in providing the best service possible to our communities. Right. It, 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 it blows my mind when we see the right to work law that was here in New Hampshire this year yep. that did fail in the House. Three, the three biggest lobbying organizations that lobbied against the right to work law were the NEA, the teachers union, mm -hmm. uh, the New Hampshire Police Association and professional firefighters of New Hampshire, which are all public sector unions that right. wouldn't have been affected by it. Right. Uh, but what it does is it threatens the, the the right to work law would threaten the public perception of the unions. Yep. And so to them who wouldn't have been affected by the law whatsoever, their members wouldn't have been affected by the law whatsoever because it would have basically just extended the provisions of Janus to all the private sector unions in New Hampshire said, no, we need to work against this um, because they are political arms. <laughs> they take all their membership dues and shovel them into politics. And we, we want to talk about the rising cost of education. We want to talk about the inefficiencies in education in this country that like, how much of like teacher pain and, and we see teachers talk about how underpaid they are, how teachers have to dip into their own pockets to pay for stuff. If we didn't make teachers pay union dues, if teachers weren't paying union dues and unions weren't lobbying to keep bad teachers on the books. Yeah. I think that's something that you see really frequently, right? The dance of the lemons, right? Moving right. these bad teachers from school to school. It's not what's right for kids. Certainly. And, you know, I, I do have a, it's really tough because when I, you look at unions, you want them to be doing the right things. You want a union to be protecting its members. Unfortunately, in the public sector, the, the folks who really get left out of it are vulnerable populations, kids, right. uh, people who are uh, marginalized populations who bad cops, for example, uh, when they do things that hurt uh, people who, who are taken advantage of by, by officers, for example, is the union serving the purpose of making our communities safer or are they kind of perpetuating the problem? And I think that's a conversation we need to have. And we need to have it in a friendly, open way where we need to really look together about, you know, to what you said at the beginning, right? When we were talking about kind of that future vision and finding those common grounds, if we want healthier communities, we want happier communities, and we want more fulfilled communities, that has some really serious implications in how we look at public policy, how we look at the world, and where our priorities lie as the American public, and quite frankly, just people across the world. Uh, if we want those results, we got to weigh those pretty heavily when we look at the decisions we make in government. Right. And I think Another point, we really need to look at the actions of unions, not just their lobbying, mm -hmm. not just the financial aspect of them, but the things that they do do in the public sector that are bad. Um, I'm on record with an all cops are bad. I'm on record as an anarchist who thinks the institution of policing in America is inherently uh, fraudulent and uh, 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 an arm of tyranny. And I never thought I would 
be the one to say, I found a good cop. Right. Uh, but here in Manchester, New Hampshire, where I live last year, uh, two years ago, COVID has made everything run together. Um, the police chief resigned in a very, very public fashion, calling out the mayor and the board of aldermen and damning the police union in uh, their resignation uh, because they had fired a cop for who, after evidence had come up that the cop was planting evidence on people and the cop was making bad arrests and the cop was targeting uh, black youth in the city and just, and planting evidence on them. Uh, they fired the cop because they, he sent a text message bragging about it on his department phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the union forced that cop back onto the force. That's fascinating. You know, well, I guess to what you said to, you know, all cops are this, all uh, <laughs> teachers are this. It, we get into some really interesting situations when we say all unions are this as well, because when we look at it, a union can't do anything. Right. A union is just a collection of individuals who make decisions to take actions. And the same thing, all police, there is a police man or policewoman who makes a decision to plant evidence in the same way a union, uh, when, when a union boss or a union uh, member or a union representative makes a decision, a lot of times that gets extrapolated out. And I think one of the, one of the most important things in any discussion about making the world a better place and, and helping people has to be looking at individual actions and saying, of course, those who are bad actors, let's hold them accountable. Let's do the right thing and make sure that that those situations are addressed without these blanket one size fits all of all unions are or all teachers are or all police uh, officers are drawing that line and holding people accountable for their actions is a really powerful step uh, to to doing some really amazing things without making those who, uh, you know, let's say that there is a, a police officer out there who is uh, doing everything completely right, or perhaps the less controversial example is a teacher who is doing everything right all the time. Uh, they're doing, they're putting their best foot forward for their students. They're fighting for their, they're educating in the right way. We would never want to say that lump, lump them in uh, with the teachers who are doing really horrible things. All teachers aren't something each individual needs to be held accountable for their for their actions. And part of that uh, is, you know, what we do when people come to Americans for Fair Treatment, we uh, look at the situation, we take it on a case by case basis and say, hey, what's happened here? How can we help? What can we do to assist in protecting your rights? Uh, because at the end of the day, it's about people and it's about taking care of folks, making sure that they're respected and protected. Uh, and that's, uh, man, like I said before, it's incredibly worthwhile. Uh, and it's something that that I think is worth the fight. All right, so, so let's go down the not all unions rabbit hole. A everyone has a horror story about unions. You can find a horror story <laughs> about stuff unions have done everywhere. In your work, you've most certainly encountered more of union activity than anyone like myself. Right. What What is an example of something that a public sector union is doing good? What's an example of something that a public sector union is like, in your opinion, setting the example of what you're trying to force them all to strive for? Yeah. You know, I think unions, uh, the one thing that I, I consistently say unions do so incredibly well is that they provide a community, right? They provide this solidarity. They bring people together. Uh, and you see uh, in many ways, you know, unions uh, offer these, uh, you know, days of action, for example, where they'll get together, they'll get 100 people out and they'll clean up a park 
or they'll go out and they'll do something great. They're providing uh, for a, a soup kitchen or they're doing these things voluntarily to provide real goods. And uh, that community aspect of lifting someone up when they're down, I think is, is incredibly valuable and incredibly important. Uh, and it's also the biggest barrier, I think, when people do run up against abusive union practices or union bosses who mistreat folks and violate their constitutional rights. A lot of times it isn't the logistics. It isn't the liability insurance. It isn't the pay. It isn't those things that stop someone from opting out. What stops people from opting out is that they feel like they're going to lose a community that's really valuable to them. And I totally get that. And I, I have a, so much respect for it. I, just to take it one step further and, and fully explain that, um, it's something that we do at AFFT is, is when someone opts out, we recognize that that can be a really big loss. Of course, we help people find the liability insurance that they need. We help hook people up with uh, organizations that can help them with those logistics pieces. But what we also do is we offer a free membership program for current and former uh, public sector employees where they can find that community again, where they can be around folks without all the politics, without all the morally questionable stuff, be part of a community that does all the good stuff without having to worry about compromising your morals along the way. And that's where that's something I'd love to see uh, personally see moral see unions do is focus on those uh, focus on negotiating on people's wages, on people's benefits, creating these amazing uh, community opportunities instead of the politics and, and that kind of nonsense that they're unfortunately involved in now. And the politics really is a terrible part of it. Like the, uh, the yeah. union does become an authority figure in people's lives. Yep. The union does become the central focus of their community, their work life, their social life is the union. And when the union gives dictates their orders or recommendations, they're usually not questioned. I, I'd mentioned in 2016 was my father's first time questioning who the union told him to vote for. It wasn't who the union told them to vote for. It was who the union told them not to vote for. My dad, a, a lifelong teamster, was told by the union not to vote for Bernie. And he calls me. And he's like, well, who the hell do I vote for? I can't vote for a woman. <laughs> and I'm sitting there I'm like, Jesus Christ. I'm like, I'm like, we'll cross that bridge later. He couldn't vote for Hillary because she was a woman. And that's what made him question who to vote for. Wow. He wasn't going to go against the union and vote for right. Bernie. Uh, but he couldn't bring himself to vote for Hillary, and that's how I got him on board with Gary Johnson. 2020, he voted for Joe. He crossed the voting for a woman bridge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it wasn't until the union told him to do something that like was against like, a lifelong trucker. He's not exactly a friend of feminists right <laughs> right um so it, it's weird for to me to see things like that and again when i dug into it i i did want to see why the teamsters were telling people to vote against bernie um and i talked to a friend who lobbies and works with unions and he is a big hardcore institutional democrat not a progressive democrat it's an institutional democrat i like to call them and uh, he told me he was like oh the unions are terrified of medicare for all it's the last benefit they offer wow <laughs> i'm like what do you mean the, the socialists and the progressives are saying it's gonna save everyone so much money he's like yeah but if the unions don't have that benefit to offer members there's no incentive for anyone to join anymore yeah you know, there's an interesting story. This is a, a case that uh, I, I saw up in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, Kiddo versus AFSCME. And uh, what happened is a guy, Mark Kiddo, who works for the Erie Waterworks Department. And uh, he went up there and uh, they had been talking to their union reps about wanting some very specific things in their contract. And um, when 
the union came back, they said, hey, well, here's the offer of the contract that you can vote on. And none of these things that they were really excited about were in that contract. But the union said, hey, well, we better vote to ratify. Otherwise, we got to go back to the bargaining table and who knows what could happen there, right? So they voted to ratify this contract. And then two days later, uh, they're talking to the employer and the employer says, man, I was really surprised that you guys voted for option two instead of option one. And they're sitting there <laughs> saying, what do you mean? We didn't know that there were even two options. And they went right. back and the union said, well, no, we decided only to give you one option because that was the option. The, the option that they, that they did not see would have given them more money, better benefits, a post-employment subsidy. So more money in retirement. And it would have switched new folks over to a, a different kind of retirement plan. But the union, because they wanted to maintain the, their golden goose, the pension, uh, right. then they refused to even give the people who they were supposed to be representing a vote on what was best for them. And that's such a frustrating situation because, again, if it's about what's right for people and if a union is going to say what's best for our members – at the very least, you'd expect a union to go to the table and say, hey, vote for what's best for you, not what's best for the union. And that's just that's even even a more basic level of, of a hopeful agreement there. Well, well, I think that hits on one of the biggest fallacies of collective bargaining. Hmm. Um, you're not collectively bargaining. You're delegating your bargaining authority to it's a right. third party. In reality, and if, if you don't have an inherent trust in the person you've delegated your bargaining authority to. Uh, you're stuck with whatever they come out with because you've yeah. signed the membership agreement, you've signed the arbitration agreement, and whatever the union negotiates is what the union negotiates. It, it's not actually the employees, it's representatives of the employees who you would hope would be beholden to them. Uh, but how often is it, and I don't know because I've never been in the meeting, I've never been in one of the meetings, but how often is it that the people sitting at the negotiating table are actually the shop steward, the shop representatives, the people from there, or how often is it lawyers from the headquarters of the union who come to do the negotiating on their behalf? You know, I'm actually not sure what the percentage breakdown is between the two. Because yeah, I mean, you do get support. They bring in professional negotiators in many cases. You also get people uh, from the local who are brought in. But I think it's it's about the incentives. It's about the incentive to do the right thing for the members or to do the right thing for the union. And when there's no competition, right, because of something like exclusive representation that allows right. the union to be there, pretty much no, no matter what, you could go through a decertification process to get rid of the union. And that's possible and doable uh, it's a, you know, it's a lift for sure. Uh, but that's a pretty high bar. So in the meantime, the union, uh, is, is kind of unshackled because there isn't another union that people could say, Hey, well, next year, I think we're going to switch over to this other better union. They've been given these special privileges by the politicians that they helped elect where mm -hmm. they do not have to compete for, to offer the best services. They get to be a little, they get to be selfish and choose what's best for them instead of the people they're supposed to represent. I mean, I guess the the strongest form of protectionism that exists is owning a congressman. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> once you own a couple senators and a couple congressmen, I, I mean, I, I say all the time, every law is enforced with the barrel of a gun. Um, but once you've be once your advocacy organization becomes a de facto arm of the government you're using the same force, the same right. threat of government enforcement to back up your monopoly and yep. your right to negotiate. Yep.
It's true. You know, I, I know we're getting uh, close to our time here. And I, I think one of the things that's really important is, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm a hopeful guy. And I, I think a lot of times when I talk about this stuff, I, I'm talking about a lot of the things that are going wrong or the things that we see that people are frustrated by. But I also want to point out uh, that there are some instances of, of really positive things happening across the country driven by people doing the right thing. And uh, one of the best examples of that is SEIU 1000, who elected a new president this past year. Uh, and that is a guy who now represents 96,000 employees in the state of California. And he ran on a platform that local 1000, SEIU 1000 would no longer be involved in politics. And I think that that's such a powerful statement that he was elected. And, and of course, the National Union is, is trying to get him unseated uh, because that's a very powerful bargaining chip for them. But it is so cool and it speaks volumes about what happens when people come together to fight for something they care about to get better representation is if you vote for better representation and you chase after better representation, good things can happen when you when you build movements of people who are united around a common moral cause. Well, SEIU, I, I, I did used to work when I when I got my start in sales doing life insurance. I worked specifically with union members on supplemental benefits for them that the unions would help pay for. Mm -hmm. SEIU, in my experience, has always been more of a actually members driven union because and i think it has to do with who they represent like the people i would talk to as seiu members they were stop and shop employees they were hotel maids they were cooks at sodexo that like service workers they, they weren't high paid people right uh they're people whose unions negotiation is basically strictly on benefits for them uh, right. in my experience and, and that was fascinating um it, it's fascinating to see that when those people go and vote in their union election, the people running actually care about the people they're representing as opposed to the corporate, uh, the corporate union's long-term interest. And right. um, I believe they're one of the larger unions, if I'm not mistaken, Absolutely. because of it. So, yeah. And if only the NEA could take a hint. Well, you know what, and I think that's maybe that that's a good thing to talk about here too. Is that you know there's a really big difference. We call it union splaining, right? So this idea <laughs> of you stepping out in front of the members that they represent. You know, we we have a uh, cartoon on our website, AmericansForFairTreatment.org, which you could check out in our blog. Uh, you know, we'll put out uh, those kind of cartoons, but it's a union boss stepping in front of a teacher with an opinion and saying, "Actually, I'll explain." And I think that that's something that's really important. The teachers and teachers unions are two different things. And when we talk to teachers, you know, their, their wants, needs, and desires are incredibly diverse. And uh, I think that's something that's really important to remember is that, you know, generally the membership of these unions is 60, 40 or 50, 50 kind of ideologically split, let's say right and left for the sake of e sake of ease of argument here. Um, but 97% of the money that the teachers union spend is toward Democrats and progressive causes. So if we want unions that represent people that are accountable, that do the right things, something needs to give. And, and I'd like to think that it could be in a way that helps people makes their lives better and, and doesn't, doesn't cut anyone out along the way. All right. Well, we are running up on our final minutes here, Connor. So I just want to ask you with the final minutes, tell people where they can learn more, how they can get in touch with you, how they can follow up with you and any final thoughts you have for them. 
Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So uh, interested in uh, Americans for Fair Treatment, that is going to be at americansforfairtreatment.org. Uh, definitely check out, plug in, uh, get connected. You can opt out on that website, read more about your rights as a public sector employee. Uh, if you're interested in Work for Liberty, uh, that book is available on Amazon. And the uh, link to get into our Discord and get access to the uh, now more than 1,000 Liberty jobs that are posted in that Discord. Uh, check me out on Twitter at CD Dragotis. Uh, and the uh, link to that Discord is right in my bio. All right. Again, great, great conversation. Thank you for joining us, Connor. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, again, if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook or Odyssey, there are links in the description. And tune in next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. As always, big shout out to our guests and our viewers for making this show worth doing. And make sure you check out the links in the description to follow up and learn more. And always, as always, check out our sponsored merch over on snackswag.com. I stream this show to Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch live, and everything's uploaded to Odyssey the same day. So make sure you check out our channel on these platforms and help out by liking, following, subscribing, and most of all, sharing the content with your friends. That's all for today. See you guys next time.